Field on Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson. Hi, Marsha. Thank you so much for doing this. Hi, thank you for having me. I am thrilled. I have been a fan for a long time. I love Night Court and Empty Nest, and but it's really your stand-up that uh, you balls to the walls. And uh, so I've been trying to find out how that start. I know you're from Chicago, right? But but I don't know. There weren't black women doing stand up that I can recall when you came up. I think you're a pioneer. Well, you were. Well, you know, Moms Maybe had uh, mm. had been doing stand up uh, uh, for a while, but she was near the end of her career when I started. Um, Charlie Hemphill was doing stand up when I got to Los Angeles, but uh, she didn't do it as much after she got on What's Happening. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I was one of the few. Whoopi came along uh, that I knew of a few years later, a couple of years later. Uh, so when I started, yeah, there was a woman named Brenda Verrett and another woman, uh, I can't think of Roberta or something. And that was it. I'm sure I came from that world, but didn't work out well for me. I had to go other ways, but... How did you cobble your act together? You, did you study? How did you cobble your act together when you started? Well, you know, sometimes it, for me, things come together that have been percolating forever for my whole life. Um, I was always the kid who wanted to see the comedians on the variety shows who wanted to, uh, who wanted to uh, go see the funny movies. I, right at five years old was taking joke books out the library. I was always reading the joke section in the, in the newspaper. So when it came time to try to put together an act, I mm -hmm. had no idea how you do it. So I did right. it like I thought it should be done. And so I just, I've been making this up as I go along since day one. <laughs> so did you, did you, organically know how to do set up punchline. I mean, you're more a storyteller than a set up punchline, but you do have joke. You do yeah. tell jokes. Yeah. I, uh, I just, the first joke I wrote on the spot was the first night I went on stage. I went, uh, you, people don't understand that there were no comedy clubs at that time. Uh, right. Comedy store had just opened in like 72, some, well, 72. They just had their 50th year anniversary. But it was, nobody knew anything about it. It wasn't a thing. The improv had been open, but they had been doing music and, you know, poetry and stuff. And they had, right. but uh, the concept of a comedy club was brand new. And so Tom Dreesen had a Monday night, which was a brand new concept uh, at a club. It was a deli called the Pickle Barrel in Chicago. And there was a feature in the paper about it. And I happened to see it. And I told a friend I was going to go down. I never went. So one day on one Monday, she came to my house and said, get up, put your clothes on. We're going. You've been talking about this long enough. You're going. I, said, I don't have any. She'd get up. You're going. And she got up, got me up, put me in the car, took me down to the club, introduced herself to Tom. Yeah. And I love Tom Dreesen. He's, he's still a friend. I'm, Saw him at the Comedy Store reunion. Uh, was a big influence uh, on me as a young comedian. But um, she introduced me to Tom, said she wants to go on. Tom said, okay, uh, we got a virgin. <laughs> and he, was, he had mentioned in the article that all the new comics were virgins and blah, blah, blah. So five hours later, two o'clock in the morning, virgin time. <laughs> and I went on stage and said, my, hi, my name is Marta Warfield, and I'm a virgin, so please be kind. <laughs> that was the first joke I wrote on the spot. It was pretty lame, but it worked. And uh, from that point, I was hooked. And so did you start to write, or what, did you just go up and go for it? Um, the second time I went on, I did the, you know, hey, I did this the first time. I can do this again thing and, you know, suck Harry Weenie. And so uh, I learned, 
you got to have some idea what you're going to say. And by that time, I had met comedians like Tom and Brad Sanders and um, Manuel Arrington and the comedians that were around Judy Tenuta. And uh, there were, you know, uh, a lot of us, we were all babies. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Bill Miller. And so we would get together and learn and teach each other and try to pick the brains of the older comics who were around and, and uh, learn how to discard the, the material and help that the older material, older comedians gave us that was no use to us because they were coming from another era. Right. And uh, the supper club era where you aspired to be an opening act, you know, the Jerry Lewis and, uh, and uh, Dean Martin, uh, Dean yeah. Martin were an opening act for, you know, the Sinatras and whatnot. And I mean, that was what the comedians did. Uh, even when you worked the Playboy clubs and, and stuff like that, you opened for somebody. And that was the era we were coming off of into this wild, wild west of comedy clubs, soon to become franchises, soon to become an entire industry that didn't exist at the time. How did you make money? Back? I mean, I remember in New York, it was $5 a set. How were you, how were you living? How were you surviving at the beginning? Uh, as soon as I got to town, I, I got a job as a switchboard operator for an answering service. Remember? Oh, we yes. Didn't have, we didn't have uh, even machines that, you know, answering machines. We had right. if your phone, if your phone rang, you weren't home, just rang. That was it. Uh, <laughs> unless you had an answering service that would come and lay, you know, like cable, like your cable installer and hook your phone up so that, uh, I could answer it for you and say hi, Vicky's house or whatever you want. I actually worked a switchboard at the in the Catskill Mountains. My father was a master of ceremonies. Did you ever do the Catskills? No, I didn't do the Catskills, but I was a switchboard operator for the Illinois Bell for four or five years. So okay, so you had a job. Job did was was being a comedian something that you thought about when you were like? Did you? I know the variety shows were the thing and, and we grew right. up watching them and I'm sure you watched Ed Sullivan like we all did. Did you decide, okay, that's what I want to do or did you just fall into it? I had no clue that regular people could be magic people. I thought the people on TV and, and stuff were magic people. <laughs> they, it was, they weren't normal people. And so I did not know of a connection between normal people and show business. It was not a part of my life. I was, you know, what I knew about show business was watching TV, going to the movies, going to a concert. Maybe I had no right. idea uh, how to do that. And that's why when I saw the, the feature in the paper about Tom Dreesen's Monday night, well, I can try that. You know, but it was a huge try. It was a huge thing. Uh, uh, it wasn't something that was, and it's hard to explain. Coming up as I did, at the time I did, being a black girl coming up, they didn't expose us to a lot of things and op as opportunities. I bet. We get those. We The opportunities we had were, you could apply for Ford, Chevy, Spiegel's post office, get a job. Blah, blah, is that, is that what your mother wanted you to do? That's what everybody was supposed to do. Grow up, right. graduate high school, get a job. Mm -hmm. uh, college was not a big reality until the early 70s for young Black kids, you know, mm -hmm. uh, maybe junior college, but it wasn't until the, after the Civil Rights Acts and the, the mm -hmm. you know, passed in the 68 and stuff that started to open up and colleges began to recruit and uh, more people started going. And so we didn't know, we didn't know jobs existed. We didn't know you could be a cable puller or anything. We had no clue about that. And so, no, I didn't dream about being on stage, but the night I went on stage for the first time, I felt as if I had been called 
to the clergy. I mean, it was <laughs> the skies opened up and, you know, sunshine rained down and I found myself to the angels choir. Oh, <laughs> all of that. It was all of that. Did you, did you face, I, I imagine you had to face resistance. I mean, I came in the, in the mid eighties and just being a woman that even then it was still a weird thing. Did you, as a black woman, did you, did you ever have audiences that were resistant because of who you were, what you looked like, or, or was that not your experience? It was to a degree, but it was to be expected, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, you were, uh, talking to people who had never talked to me. I was the only Black person in town for years. Years. That's how I made a living. I would be the only Black person. In to the point that people would see me and hunk and wave. And I wasn't famous. They would, hi. And I'm, hi, why are you waving at me? And you're the Black girl. They knew there was a Black girl in town. And so uh, they weren't really hostile, mm -hmm. but there was that reality. And, and there were, you know, times when I'd, I'd say things and get up <laughs> and be like, okay, <laughs> you know, down, Clem. Uh, but uh, on the whole, most of the time it was okay. It would be after the show when you'd run in, you know, somebody and, I ain't never seen a black girl before. Yeah. I like that. So so you were putting your act together. How long did it do? So did you get like your your five, like you had your five that you could do? Or did you, were you able to just go from the start? Well, I had a different uh, kind of experience starting in Chicago mm -hmm. and where you had to find your own room, you had to find your own way. Uh, and I one of my first gigs was as a um, opening uh, host and MC for a, a jazz in a jazz club. Oh, the eighty-piece band, and uh, I got to be the house comic. So you had to have two minute, one minute, two minute hunks in between acts. You know, there might be who knew how many acts per show. So I had to get comfortable doing that and, you know, emceeing and opening the show, that kind of stuff. So I got to, I learned how to put that together. And then I would, you know, get my opening 10 minutes or whatever to do. So I started putting stuff together like that. Then when I went to Los Angeles, everybody had this idea that there was a, a comedy club to success pipeline that went oh. directly from the comedy store to the Tonight Show to a <laughs> and I although thought they, you almost you pretty much did that though it took years but how long I mean, did it take? Um, I started doing stand up in 1974. I got night court in 1986. So. Uh, yeah, you know, there are a lot of it. there are a lot of steps along the way. You know, you there are a lot of big breaks. People think about big break. You never know what your big break is. It's just another gig. You know, there are a lot of big breaks along that way. You know, I got to do a lot of things that even when I got to court, I was of the mindset that, you know, this could all go away tomorrow and I'd be fine because I still have stand-up and I I there'll be more, you know, bumps to uh uh, to the career. So, and I always considered myself a stand-up first, you know, I'm, I didn't get in it to be an actress, right? I got in it to do stand-up. Had you studied acting at any no. time? No, you just. When I got night court, um, I was, I felt woefully unprepared. So I told my agent I needed to study something so I'd know what, I don't even know what, I don't know where to stand, where to go with the cameras. I don't know anything. <laughs> and so I said, I need a class to teach me something. And he got me signed up with a class called Acting for the Camera. I go to the class, 
they had me do a little scene. They said, you know, you have a natural comedy bent. I didn't know really, thanks. I didn't know that. So then they said, get this book, read the first chapter in the preface and then come back and we'll do more scenes. So I got the book, I opened it up. And the first line was the secret to comedy is to keep it simple. Mm. So I closed the book, put it down, never went back to the class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can do that, huh? If you say keep it simple, why am I reading more if there's 280 pages of keep it simple? That's stupid. So I said, I'm going to take your advice. We'll keep it real simple. <laughs> okay, well, that's so, but you were doing TV before NICOR because you did variety, you did variety, you did the Richard Pryor show, right? How did, how did you get that? How did that, before that, you did, did you do Alan King? Did you do something with Alan King? Yes, I did the Jim Neighbors show. I did the Mac Davis show. I did the Alan King show where I was an extra with a line or something. I was so nervous. I had no idea what I was doing, uh, but I got through it somehow. And did you have an agent? How did you segue from the clubs to television? I, I don't know that it was, I was in LA and those things, so you hear about something, you go, they, they got an open audition, you got this, that. Somebody saw you at the tonight at the comedy store improv and said, you, we need somebody to do this. That's how I got the gigs. I didn't get an agent until 79. No, I did get an agent before that. I got an agent after the Richard Pryor show, I got booked on a special called That Thing on ABC in 1978, 77, 70, early. And uh, it was going to, it was a pilot. It was mm -hmm. for a variety, comedy variety show. Shelley Long was on the show. Oh, wow. Andy Patinkin was on wow. the show. But they weren't the stars of the show. The star was uh, comedian uh, Denny something. I can't think of his last name. But he had a kind of uh, John Ritter thing going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was the star of the show. And so I got cast on that. So I called ICM and I said, I have a job on a TV show and I don't have an agent. <laughs> you had one now. <laughs> they said, you have a guy, they're, they're going to offer. No, I said, they have offered me the job. I have the job. <laughs> I don't have an agent. I would like an agent. <laughs> and they said, hold on. And they connected me with an agent. And that's how I got my first agent. Wow. Then I won the San, uh, the San Francisco stand-up comedy competition. And that year they had, uh, that was 79. And the next few months, I think we went to 80 by then. They, they had a national competition. And I won that too. And that's when I met my next agent. Fred Amzell. And so the Richard Pryor show, you didn't have an agent, you, cause you, you were, were recurring on that. How, how did you negotiate that deal? How did you do that? Nobody negotiated that deal. That was Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney was uh, at the comedy store. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Richard, Richard had been to the store a lot, you know, when he would be working out an album, he'd mm -hmm. come in like on a month on Monday or Tuesday, with right. some notes, and by Friday he would have an album, and so <laughs> uh, we would just sit there and watch him. And then when he said that he had got the NBC show, uh, they had sketches, and Paul was working with him, and he said, "You know, you guys can do that stuff. You you want to come down and do blah blah blah?" And yeah, so they were small parts at first that he had he would cast from. The people that we knew at the comedy store, Tim Reed, uh, John Witherspoon, Robin Williams, Argus Hamilton, uh, just a bunch of us from the from the store. So we did the first show, not the pilot, the first show of the of the season, mm -hmm. and uh, then Paul and Richard decided that this core group could be the ensemble and so 
they kept calling us every week. And that's how most of us got our union cards. Wow. Was, uh, this job dropped out of the sky for all of us. Did your life start to change then? No. <laughs> I mean, I got, I got the, um, the pilot. You were making, you were making more money. I was making some money, but you know, it was uh, this month, two, three, four months. Another gig, two, three, four months. Another. I mean, there was again, there was not much of a circuit. The last stop. When I started working there was, I think, uh, around the same time I got the pilot, uh, that thing on ABC. Right. Uh, which was early 78. And then I started headlining there and I could work there every couple of months, every two, three months. And then uh, the Ice House. Um, In Pasadena. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And they would let me, they would book me as a midlet. But the last stop is where I put my uh, energy into because they let me headline. They were the only club. I was one of the few women headlining at that time. And so uh, from there, and then the comedy club started picking up more and more after I won the competition and all that kind of stuff. I got more opportunities to headline other clubs. And that's pretty much what I did. So and in between, I, I, I would get other kinds of gigs. I, I don't know how the scene was in LA because I was in New York and there, there was a whole circuit, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, you know, like you could work weekends, but in LA, there were just the handful, there was just the, the couple of clubs in LA, right? I mean, were, were there places to go to work? There was San Francisco. <laughs> we went to San Francisco. Uh, that's the I did. I worked in the Bay Area a lot. Of, a lot. Uh, but again, where, where I started, Five years later, it was different because they had started more uh, right. of, the, of the franchise clubs. The improv had clubs. I worked the improv circuit. And the, the, I didn't do the comedy store as much, but I did the uh, uh, laugh stops and, and giggles and tee and ha-ha's. Ha-ha's, Burbank, wherever. But yeah. That's and so when you were headlining, so now you've got an hour or so of material. Um, you're, I'm assuming you're, you're right. You're not, you're writing. You've become a writer now. Yes. Yes. But not a formally trained, nothing. I, I learned how to write for, I can write for Marsha, uh, but uh, writing for other people. I don't know. I, I don't do that. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I am a writer because I know what I want to say and it, it doesn't come out right when other people uh, try to interpret it for me. How, how did Book of Marcia start? When I came back, you know, and I started doing stand up again and I went back to the beginning, the, you know, how you do it. You go back to the bar, to clubs, you put together five minutes, then you you know, expand and try to get more stage time and more stage time. And uh, that's what I did. And as I was coming along, people would want to ask me questions and stuff. And they go, you should write a book. And I'm like, that, that's about as exciting to me as doing math homework for fun. <laughs> I just don't understand why I would do that. And then I said, you know, but your, my stand-up is autobiographical. Uh, to an extent, mm -hmm. and um, because I have to reintroduce myself to audiences, most of these people go into clubs now, they didn't come up with night court, they don't know, uh, so, right. and I was gone so long, so they don't, they don't know me, so I had to start all over again and reintroduce myself to new audiences, and that is a fair bit of, this is who I am, hi, my name's Marcia, and so, uh, I said, well, maybe I can do my, my stand-up act. Tell my story that way. We all have stories. We all have more than one story. We have millions of stories. People who know stories can pull hundreds of stories out of you that you didn't even know were there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I said, I can, I can do the Book of Marcia as a stand-up show. 
Then I founded my own religion. And that religion needed a gospel. So the book of Marcia is also the first chapter of the gospel of Jesus. (laughs) Jesus, yeah. (laughs) I love it, yeah. Because she (laughs) is the feminine force that created the universe that emerged from the primordial ooze she created pregnant with herself and delivered life throughout the universe. She creates life in her image, male and female makes she them. And so the book of Marcia introduces the church of Jesus. <laughs> and how, how do men respond to the, the, the church of Jesus? Women are so busy cheering that nobody cares. <laughs> Yeah, but no, most men, you know, it's cool. It's like the limitations put on women put a lot of pressure on men. Mm -hmm. And some men are resistant to Mm -hmm. having that pressure released. Mm -hmm. They're not even aware they're under that pressure. Mm -hmm. But somehow when you bring it up and they're like, okay, this is not threatening. What I'm saying is not threatening to you. It's just another way of looking at things. So they're usually pretty cool with it, you know? And I get a lot of guys on my uh, social media, they Jesus, <laughs> and uh, seem to really get into it. You, uh, you were body and sexy and ballsy, and you were saying fuck way before I remember anybody saying fuck on stage and getting away with it. Um, and smoking a cigarette during your act and talking about men's, uh, one of the funniest lines of yours that killed me uh, um, was something about you're supposed to look into a man's eyes the first thing and tell us what it is. Now, Cosmo and all those magazines say the first thing a woman looks at in a man is his eye. Mm-hmm. I have eyes. <laughs> it's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, okay, so let's get to that. I, I was reading your wiki page last night and um, I was so moved, Marsha, by your story and, and the quote uh, about what happened with your mom. And I wanted to talk about that as a mom and um, someone who has a mom. <laughs> First, how did your mom feel about you with stand-up? I'm sure success colored color that situation, but was she accepting of that when you first started doing it? Well... I don't know that my mother was ever accepting of me as I am. Oh, I, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she had an idea of what she wanted her daughter to be that didn't always uh, mesh with the person her daughter was. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there was a process for us getting to an understanding. Look, this is it, you know. And uh, so as far as stand-up, she was more concerned Mm -hmm. because, as I said, we have no concept of how you get into show business, of what it takes, of what you have to do. And, you know, the stories we hear are all salacious and, you know, terrifying. And so she was concerned. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the way parents are, protective is to tell you you can't do stuff mm-hmm. you can't do that oh yes I can well, no you can't <laughs> and so they just you don't understand and that kind of stuff and so we clashed a bit about it but like I said the reason I went to Los Angeles or the way I got to Los Angeles in the first place was mm-hmm. that I told my mother I was going to hitchhike I was going to Los Angeles I was 22 years old you can't tell me what to do I'm going to Los Angeles. This is what I want to do for a living. And this is where show business is now. The Tonight Show had moved and everybody was saying, you know, the word on the street is New York. Now that the Ed Sullivan show is gone, you got to go to LA. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we're talking this era of the hippie, the free love, that this people are hitchhiking across the country and sleeping on the street in San Francisco. You know, this was a thing. 
And so I'm going. She said, you don't have any money. I don't care. I'm going. I'm on my way. So she said, if you don't go, I'll give you a trip to Los Angeles for your birthday. And you can, you can have two weeks at the Continental Hyatt House, which was right next door to the comedy store. Wow. And a, and a round trip ticket. So if you ever need them back then, round trip tickets didn't, you know, there were no restrictions. Right. As long as you had that round trip ticket, you could go home. And so I said, okay. And that was the deal we made. So I went to Los Angeles on my birthday, on my 22nd birthday in 1974. And I had $150 in my pocket and a round trip ticket and two weeks at the Continental Hyatt House. And I, first thing I did was sell that ticket and <laughs> got a job at an answering service in Beverly Hills. <laughs> okay, and so after two weeks, uh, what were you hearing from back home? How was mom responding to that? Uh, what are you doing now? And uh, I told her I had taken out a room at Howard's Weekly, $39 a week. Oh, my God. Uh, on Ivar in Hollywood. And uh, that's what I did. And I was always pretty headstrong, I guess. And and I say to people who say, well, how did you do that? What made you do that? I was too stupid to be scared. I was too young, too stupid to be scared. It wasn't that I was full of bravado or anything. I just, I'm just going to Los Angeles to do stand-up comedy. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and, and, and because you had a switchboard job, you never ran out of money. You were never hungry. You always had a room to... That didn't last long. <laughs> oh, okay. So Okay, so, so what did you do? Well, I started trying to work and we did the unemployment thing, you know, and uh, we did whatever we could, you know, and for sometimes we just starved. I would walk from the wherever I was staying to the comedy store, like miles there and back. I'd be walking home from the comedy store through Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood and Vine and stuff like that two, three o'clock in the morning, uh, going home. That's what I did. Wow. And, okay, so you were married when you, before this, right? You were married when you were in Chicago, young, young girl, like 18, you got married? Yes, I got married when I was 18. Uh, we separated when I was 19, got divorced when I was 20, found stand-up, left the city, left the state. And so at what, so was there ever a time, okay, so how did you get night court? Because that, that was a life, that had to be a life changer. I was um, doing stand-up. Mm -hmm. I was on my way to Seattle uh, to do a gig. And my agent called and said, they want to talk to you at night court. The bailiff died. I said, she died last year. They said, the next, she died too. <laughs> I went, are you kidding me? This No. And they're about to go into production. It was like three weeks before they went into production for the fourth season. And uh, so they want to talk to you. They don't know what they're going to do with the role. They don't, they're not sure. They just want to get through the, the first show. Uh, and they want to see, they want to just, just, just go in and meet with the producers and whatever. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm like, I'm, I'm not dressed. Just go. So I had in a sweatsuit. I had a pack of cigarettes in my hand and a wallet. And I go in and I meet Briny, the producer. And he says, hi, how you doing? And he had a real fireplace going and the <laughs> air conditioner on. And uh, he said, can I have one of those cigarettes? I said, sure. He said, light up. Said, really? Said, yeah. So we started smoking and he said, so where are you from? I said, I'm from Chicago. He said, me too. So we had this conversation about Sony, whatever, shooting the breeze. And he said, okay, so we're doing the show. I don't know what I want to do yet. I'm looking at people and I'm trying to decide what are we going to do for the season, but we know, uh, we'll let you know where, where we go. You know, and it's nice meeting you. So thank you, bye. Left, called my agent, said, it went all right. I don't think I got it. He didn't say anything about it. So I'm off to Seattle, bye-bye. And you didn't read or anything? No. No. 
I got on the plane. Uh, when I got off the plane, they picked me up and said, call your agent. Well, okay. I said, you got it. I got what? You got night courts. Got what? They don't have a role. They said, well, whatever it is, you got to call your agent. So I called my agent and they uh, booked me for the first show. They did not book me for the second show. I got hired for the series or starting on the third show of the fourth season. Wow. That's how I got night court. And now at this point, I know your mother's not accepting too much of who you are and what you are, but at this point, when now you're on this hit TV series, is she a little bit proud, a little bit happy? Oh, that was, you know, the whole landscape of, of LGBTQ, whatever, was so different then. You can't really put it in this kind of time frame mindset. Uh, it seems outrageous now to that somebody's mother would say, don't tell while I'm alive. It seems outrageous. It wasn't okay. outrageous then. We, we didn't talk about this yet. So I don't know if people out there know the deal that you made with your mother. And at what point did you make this? this? When I officially came out to her, I must have been somewhere around the same time when I got night court. I was, well, maybe a little younger. Maybe a little. When, Marsha, when did you realize you were gay? Because you you married a man. Your your comedy yeah. was very much sexual, and a lot of it was about men. Right. Uh, when did you really come to? When did you know that you were gay? I got an inkling when I fell in love. Uh -huh. And my boyfriend told me. I said, I don't know why I like her so much and why I can't really talk to her. Like, I, I don't, I just don't, I don't usually like women. Like, do I don't, why do I like her so much? He said, like, bitch, you in love. And I said, oh, <laughs> I could have had a V8. I mean, it was like the light, again, a light switch went off and everything in my really? life. Really? In that point, moment, you hadn't? To that point, I was 23, made sense. Because mm -hmm. there, there had to be crushes before that, I would imagine. I didn't know they were crushes. Right. I started having crushes at two. I had a crush on Annette Funicello <laughs> at two and didn't understand why everybody didn't love Annette. Like, I mean, what was wrong with you? Annette, but I did, Annette. <laughs> <laughs> She yes. was the shit. And yes. so, I mean, I, I was probably at looking at the TV going pretty. And my mother was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and, By the way, Jack McGee says, hi, Marsha. I worked with you as Charlie's replacement on Night Court in the early years. Do you know Jack? He's wonderful. Hi, Jack. How are you? <laughs> um, so, so around this time in your early 20s, you came out to your mom that early? I did not come out, but I started bringing women to her house that were friends of mine that, you know, we had to sleep together. And how did she handle that? Well, for space that didn't, you know, girls sleeping together, is, that's what girls do when you only have one room and, mm -hmm. you know. So I didn't come out until a few years later. And, uh, and she said, I know, which pissed me off. It still <laughs> pisses me off when people say that. You don't know. And if you did know, why did we have to have this conversation? Why didn't we know, did we talk about why is it a thing? Don't tell me you know. You didn't know. You don't know shit. If nobody tells you, if I don't tell you, you don't know. And there have been people that I thought were gay. They weren't gay. And I'm sure with everybody else. So you don't know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she said she knew. And I'm like, well, you know, you could have told me. Instead of we wouldn't have had to have these fights back and forth, these, I don't want to wear this dress. I don't want to do that. I don't, no, I don't want to do the girly thing. I don't want to do that. Well, she wanted me to be the girly girl. I'm, I'm six feet tall. I don't want to do that. It's stupid. <laughs> and so um, we didn't have to have these fights in my she, she claimed that she always knew? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what was and the she, certainly had to have known looking back on my life and who I was as a child it's like 
the baby's gay. Give me a break. <laughs> Look at this child. Well, but you got married and you're doing stand up about I men. I had to, and that was how I got conditioned and indoctrinated into the heteronormative lifestyle I was expected to. And a lot of things, not just uh, straight, gay, whatever. I did a lot of things because they were expected of me. Right. Because that's what women do. Uh, and it, did, it, did you know when you married your husband that that was not really what you wanted to do? No. Everybody else did, though. Mm -hmm. You know, looking back on it, uh, there were people who were against the marriage. I didn't understand. But, uh, you know, there was another girl that they wanted him to marry. And uh, again, looking back at it, it was because he's marrying the dyke. Why don't he marry the straight woman? You know what I mean? He's poor thing, and so no. he's marrying the dyke. So, so you made this. Your mother. Tell us what your mother asked you to do, because I. Um, she said, you know, okay, you know, that's who you are. Just uh, do me a favor and don't tell anybody and don't come out while I'm alive. And this is this is. This is years ago. In the 80s or so, yeah. And you agreed to that? It wasn't a, a big request at that time. At that time, it was pretty much normal, you know? It right. Was, I, I love the sin, hate the sin, or love the sin, or hate the sin, whatever mindset. It was like, you know, don't ask, don't tell. It's It was... You know, it was acceptance within the boundaries and parameters that existed at that time. So I didn't feel unduly burdened by it um, at the time. As you know, getting older and looking back, it was unfortunate, but we were in that time. It would be we a tragedy now, and it is when it happens, but mm -hmm. then, you know, that was about as close to acceptance as you know as we got so were you able to live a genuine life in spite of not tell not being outward not speaking of it were you able to live your life in a genuine way genuine in other words were you able to love who you wanted to love and share your life with who you wanted to share your life within the boundaries that everybody played in everybody played in it when when you saw another person with their personal assistant on the red carpet <laughs> only there was there was no need to wink there was just oh hi how you doing blah, blah. that's just the way it was mm -hmm. the only time you got to express yourself was in arenas and and uh, clubs and bars for that purpose and right you know you didn't necessarily want to be seen going in them uh, you know that was the time that was those were the restrictions uh that people they're not just in show business people you know you mm -hmm. could lose your job mm -hmm. if some person saw you going in somewhere uh, it, I saw her going into the bar, and oh my goodness, was it true that you've been consorting with, you know, and so uh, that's just the way it was, unless it was opening up for gay men until the age crisis, and mm -hmm. then things got locked down again, mm -hmm. you know, go back underground, and uh, the tragedy was, got downplayed because of that, because mm -hmm. Um, when I first got to LA, the Saturday night on in Boys Town, there were millions of people, and it was just it was a big disco party, and it was things were like yeah, rah, rah, confetti and all that kind of stuff. Two three years later, it was a ghost town. Right, they were gone, and it was kind of scary. I mean, it was terrifying, but it was kind of really had an effect on you, you know, uh, the fear, the, the, the whole atmosphere that uh, 
was uh, the hungover of the early 80s and mm-hmm. uh, that fear of AIDS. And it just put a damper. It, it shut everything down. The AIDS crisis shut everything down. Uh, and it made it shameful again mm-hmm. because it had been becoming more acceptable and more mm-hmm. accepted. Uh, and then you had to go back in the closet. So, you know, it's been a, a roller coaster and stuff, but that was just the the times we were in. Rock Hudson was a bit, was a, wasn't Rock Hudson like a big part of that? Because first everybody found out he was gay, then he had AIDS and it was, I think shocking to most of America. Both those pieces of information were kind of shocking. Did 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 it did the did it ever cost you? Did I know you were you weren't out? You weren't you you were keeping it under wraps, but pe- people knew. You said, uh, did it ever cost you? Do you think it ever cost you work? Did it ever? No, I don't know. You know, people in this in this business. You can lose a gig for, you know, not having your toes painted. I don't know, anything, you, <laughs> you know, you can, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can get one because you had a cigarette to give the producer when he said, <laughs> give me one of those cigarettes. I mean, uh, nobody knows what the formula is or everybody would do it. And no two people have ever made it the same way, ever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are no rules. Uh, but I don't know that I lost uh, roles because I was gay, but because I didn't fit the, you know, we have tropes in the business and there's always been the tough chick, the broads, uh, which if you look at all the women who were broads in the movies, they were kind of butch and, uh, you know, handsome women, uh, as they used to say. And so, you know, the, the, I played a cop thousands of times, you know, so uh, cop, gym teacher, you know, do you going to get those calls? So I don't know that I ever lost anything. I probably got some work because I was uh, abroad. So, so Marsha, why, when things were going, you did so much television, why did you take a hiatus and, and go away for 15, 20 years? Um, life has a way of not giving a shit what you're doing. And uh, um, a lot of things happened in the mid 90s, early 90s. Um, my mother died in 95, 94, 95. And she had been sick a long time. And my aunt, her sister, who was also big in helping raise me, mm-hmm. um, she they died within two months of each other. Mm, I'm uh, sorry. And I lost my house in the uh, Northridge quake. Oh. And um, just- did you, Where did you live? Woodland Hills. And, uh, and I had just finished decorating. I mean, it was, this was, I had moved up to this new house and, uh, Woodland Hills, Calabasas area, and it was up on a hill, and it was, and I had just put the last trinket in place, and oh. it, uh, whatever, and wake up to, <laughs> and so, um, wow, having to move, then, then I had the '80s disease, um, which was, you know, having an effect, and. Uh, I just didn't know it at the time, but I just had a breakdown. I just broke down. Uh, I was in a bad relationship. I just broke down. So I went home and home was in LA. My sister had moved to Vegas. So I went to visit her to get myself together, you know, do a little couch surfing, you know, and, uh, Ended up staying. You know, she was a single mother with a young son and uh, needed somebody there to help raise him. And uh, I needed a place to stay and 
two weeks turned into 15 years. Did you miss it? Yeah. And, but you didn't go, you didn't stand up at all. You didn't like go to the hotels and nothing. No, I didn't have any money. I ain't have nothing. I didn't have, I had no money. I had no income. I didn't know anybody in Vegas. Mm. Uh, The industry in Vegas was closed pretty much. And I didn't know anybody. I had, had, uh, you know, you leave Los Angeles for three days and march a hoop. (laughs) And so, uh, Nobody knew I was gone. Nobody came looking. Nobody cared. And uh, so I just needed the break, I guess. And then it turned into what it did. What was there any joy in there? Was there self-discovery? Was there, was there any, was, did good come out of it? I never quit. I never quit in my head. I never quit, uh, you know, and good, bad, you know, those are, qualifiers that don't really mean a lot you know it happened those are the cards I had that's how I played them I got new cards this time I'm playing these so how did you uh okay so if if your mother died in 95 but you waited till 2017 right to come out why did I know you had made that promise to her that you wouldn't while she was alive what made you change your mind why in 2017 why then I was uh, out among people. I hadn't been out among people uh, and all that time. I wasn't going to clubs. I wasn't dating. I wasn't uh, doing much of anything. I was pretty much at home, mm-hmm. being a homebody. And so there was nobody to tell. <laughs> I mean, so when I started socializing again and um, and being around people, then it became important. And I got on Facebook. I hadn't been on Facebook. And I got on Facebook and having those conversations on Facebook and people uh, saying things, you know, every once in a while, somebody hits on you, somebody, whatever. It's just like, you know what? Hey, I'm gay. The world didn't end. And so... (laughs) I said it again, and that was that. Do you remember the first time you said that out loud? No. No, I don't know that. uh, I don't know that that's a natural way of me seeing me. I always saw myself as open sexually, you know, Mm -hmm. just open. And then uh, I realized that was more open with women. I didn't, I realized I didn't want to have a relationship with a man. It wasn't sexual. I just didn't want to have relationships with men. I wanted to have relationships with women. Mm-hmm. I like women. And mm-hmm. so, you know, then I realized there's a name for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't... Uh, something I really agonized over or anything. Mm-hmm. It was, again, it was th- these revelations that were liberating. They were, well, duh. And then I'd get mad at, well, why did they put all these restrictions in here in the first place? It's what made me uh, study religion. I wanted to know why it, Why it's a moral thing? What, where does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? So I read the Bible. And at the end of it, I went, these people are making crap up. And I was liberated from that. And so I, you know, could embrace uh, something that was had always been, but never acknowledged. You have a really important story to tell. I'm glad you're doing Book of Marsha because you have a really important. So just Book of, Book of Marsha changes, right? It's it's not. Yes. No, it's not static. It's uh, I mean, you know, yes, I have an act, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I like to keep things fluid and moist. And so. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Netflix is a joke. I hadn't heard of that until I just saw it on your page. I'm excited about that. So 
that's May 6th you're going to be performing and you'll be doing Book of Marsha. What is what is Netflix as a joke? Uh, that's Netflix Comedy Channel. And uh, they're doing a big festival where they're have like, if you go look to go to Netflix as a joke and look up the the, uh, the listings and the, the event listings, there are hundreds of shows with hundreds of comedians wow. all over Los Angeles. And one of them is a big LGBT standout, uh, stand-up special with like 30 different LGBT comedians. Uh, and it's at the Greek on the, on the 7th. The 6th. I'm at the- Oh, you're, the oh, you're not at the Greek. I see you're- No, at I'm the at the Regency West. Right. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm, I get to do both. And uh, and that's pretty exciting. One's the whole show, one's a you know five minute set, but it's still uh, to be around. It Wanda's uh, producing it. Wanda Sykes, fantastic. And, and and so, how did you go from not doing it? How did you segue back? How did you start doing? Was did you do little? Did you do little five minutes? Did you did you did you write a whole new act? What did how did you do it? How did you get back in there? That's a long time to be gone. Yeah, I started over again like I like a rookie. I didn't do any of the. I couldn't couldn't even remember. <laughs> I could. Do people tell me lines I used to do, and I'm like, oh, I did that. That's pretty damn funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't even. So I started over like I had never done it before, and I went back to bars and and clubs and you know open mics and all that kind of stuff and started all over again and uh, sometimes oh. I'd get to do 20 minutes or so or I'd just riff and see if I could hold a stage that long but uh, the writing material took um, to now to get me to where I feel comfortable about presenting uh, an hour long show. Did you find, did you find that there was a certain, I mean, I, I, we are of the same age. Uh, do you find, did you find that when you went in front of audiences that there was an acceptance right off the bat because they knew you, they remembered you, or was that not part Man, of the deal? No, nah, they don't know me. The comedians know me, but mm -hmm. the audience, they don't care. And, uh, you know, it's always a process, even if they know you, even if they know who Roz is, they don't know who Marsha is. Mm -hmm. And they often those images don't mesh. You know, Red Fox is famous for, you know, people coming to the club expecting to see Fred Sanford <laughs> and they see Red Fox and they're like, well, this is not the same guy. No. <laughs> You got to wash your ass. Grand Sanford ain't gonna tell you to wash your ass. And if you can't fuck it, suck it. Now he's not gonna say that. And so uh, it, it, you always have to introduce yourself. You reintroduce yourself a million times and many people reinvent themselves over and over again. I mean, Beyonce reinvents herself every show, Rihanna, Madonna, they've always, you know, if they come out and it's the same Madonna from the last tour, you're like disappointed. Yeah. No, you want to you want to see Cher, Janet Jackson. You want to see these people doing reinventing themselves all the time. And so there's room to do that when you define what the show is, who how it's going to be. You know, it's it's what you say it is. The joke is what you say. The show is how it you say it goes. So uh well, I haven't had too much of a problem connecting with audiences. You know, sometimes they're resentful, sometimes, but it's usually not gay and it's usually not old and it's not the women, it's the race that people have. I mean- Oh, oh my God, really? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, put, I do a series on, and it's not a regular series, but a recurring series on TikTok would say, white people, we need to talk. <laughs> That phrase there gets me so much hate. I had somebody say, yeah. how would you like, said, you're calling us white people is the same as me calling you the N-word. 
I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could, you calling out white people, you're racist, you're this. I get called racist all the time. Wow. Uh, it, it's a it's a very it's America's third rail and it's foundational it's a foundational third rail and mm. uh, you have to confront it the people you know we've created a society that uh punish people for confronting that issue that sanction people's lives for confronting that issue but we have we have to find a way to, they're going so far to keep us from confronting this. They're passing laws that say you can't teach the history. Right. That's how much we want, not want to acknowledge our foundational third rail. Mm -hmm. And so I feel uh, compelled to Good. find a way to address these things and, and get the laughs, but no compromise, no, no, uh, no, you know. Well, you've always been fearless. Your comedy's always been fearless. Marsha, what were you doing when, when the pandemic started? You'd already started working, you were already back. Mm -hmm. How did that impact your life? What, what did you do when COVID hit? I got, I was, uh, in March of 2020, my boo baby took me to Hawaii. And we went to Hawaii and there was there were grumblings about the, the uh, pandemic overseas and that it might be coming here and, you know, but nobody, no mandates, no nothing, no restrictions. So we get on the, we get on the plane and there are a lot of people with masks on. And there's a lot of, you know, this is kind of weird. And we get to Hawaii, we went to Kauai and there's a ship that didn't move. It had been uh, grounded there. And um, there were little things happening, but it wasn't really, you know, a big deal. We didn't, mm -hmm. it, we weren't restricted in any way. And we were, uh, like I said, on Kauai off season. It was very pleasant. And, you mm -hmm. know, just walking around and seeing the, uh, the town. I had never been to Hawaii. We get on a plane, more masks, get back. And they're like, well, we might have to close down. We might have to do this. I was working at the LA Comedy Club at the Stratosphere and um, two nights a week. And they were saying, well, we don't know what's going on, but if you feel like you know, you're not comfortable coming, you know, we understand if you don't want to do it. And I said, well, I'll let you know. And things, the news got more and more concerning. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what, why don't I just not why don't we just take a little break? Well, that ended up being the last time I worked there. Um, and uh, then everything shut down. And so back to doing what I always do. Stay at home. home. So, <laughs> so, but was it frustrating or was it comfortable? Was it, what did you do? Did you do any, I didn't do anything. Well, I did live shows all the time, but I, I didn't clean a closet. I didn't throw out any paper. Did you do any? Did you do anything during that time? You know, I went. I did the same writing. I spent a lot of time on social media. Uh, uh, a lot of time, just uh, trying to, you know, stay uh, aware and involved. Mm -hmm. uh, but no real stand up until things started opening up a bit. And I started going out and doing a couple of things here and there. Um, and then got uh, a call to do 911. And, uh, you know, those, the opportunities that came up, I took advantage of. And as things have opened up more, I did more clubs. I had been working with George Wallace mm -hmm. uh, for a while before the pandemic. And, uh, then, then, you know, things would come up, events and stuff, and we'd do those and, and try to be careful. But uh, I didn't really shut down. I just, it didn't make sense to go out, so I didn't. And I didn't do anything until it made sense. And then when the vaccine came, I was right there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm quadruple vaxxed, so uh, 
As a did you stay COVID free? Yeah. Because Vegas so was Vegas was bad. Well, for a while, the strip was empty. They, yeah. they did close yeah. Vegas for a hot minute. I mean, it was eerily silent. Um, and I didn't come right back when everybody else did. But um, after a while, yeah, I, I just, you know, tried to keep my, my feet in the, in the water, my toes in the water. So um, May 29th through 1st, you'll be at the Comedy Cellar, not in New York, in Las May, Vegas. April. April, I'm sorry. You'll be at the Comedy Cellar in Las Vegas. Yes. You'll be doing uh, Netflix as a Joke, the book of Marsha on May 6th. What, what, if you had your druthers, if you could have a dream come true, what would you like to see happen for you moving forward? Do you have, do you have a vision of that or are you a one day at a time person? I'm kind of uh, both, you know, I, I could, uh, I'm, I'm open to suggestion, but uh, one of the things I want to do is visit every African-American history museum in the country. Wow. I want to visit uh, everyone. I want to take people with me uh, because I think they're fascinating as I've been going to them for years. And I don't think they get enough. Uh, recommendation they have their great uh, uh, capsules time capsules and and they capture a history we don't often get to experience so um that's one of the things I want to do that I sounds wanna, like a Netflix show by the way it really does and I want to do the book of Marcia I want to take that show around uh, it's my own self-contained one woman stand-up special live and uh, I'd love to take it around the country as I'm visiting Black museums and uh, whatever else comes, I'm happy for. I know it's math homework to you, but I really do. I, I have a literary salon, I'm a writer. I really hope you write it down because <laughs> I, I, I think we're, it's getting archived because we have video and everything and people will see it and be able to watch it through, throughout time. But there's something about holding that book in your hand. And there are a lot of women that can really, it's important, your story's very important. I'm, I'm, I'm moved, personally it moved me for reasons we talked about before the show. And um, I hope you t keep telling your story, however you choose to tell it. Thank um, you. It's very inspiring to me. You are very inspiring. I love your comedy. I love your stand-up. I love your body. I love your fearlessness. <laughs> and you. I look forward to seeing you live in a, I haven't done the clubs yet. I'm, I'm COVID crazy and still scared. And I'm four times shot yeah, and all that. I understand. I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people. I understand. We're talking about a deadly disease you can't see. So take care of yourself. But I, I thank you so much for, for doing this. And I've so enjoyed spending this time with you. And uh, thank you for being, thank you for being you. I dig the Marshall Warfield. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I've had a ball. Thank you so much, Marsha. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.